If you uh, have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians today. We are in a series called Messy Church, and uh, we're going to be talking today in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to continue Paul's argument that he's making here to the Corinthian church, and uh, he's going to be talking this morning about the idea of foolishness, uh, as we did before, but I want to kind of start off maybe a little differently with uh, some names this morning, names that uh, you probably are not aware of, names that probably don't make a whole lot of sense, but uh, some names that... Um, are influential nonetheless. Because what you're going to see here in this passage is Paul's going to start to come after some names. He's going to start to come after some people in the church. And he's going to start to explain, hey, this is, this is not about you. This is about the power of Christ. And so as much as we can put our names out there and we want to be important, he says the most important name out there is Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're going to head this morning. But in order to do that, I thought it'd be interesting to kind of trace a life real quick. Uh, this first name you're going to know very well because he passed away, I think it was even last year um, or the year before. But Billy Graham, um, big name, obviously, in evangelical circles and around the world. And so Billy Graham was uh, hugely beneficial. And to say that it sounds so counterintuitive because his, his gatherings and what he did for the gospel and the name of Christ around the globe was phenomenal. But a lot of people don't know the names associated with Billy Graham. And so I want to kind of give you a couple names this morning, and you're going to see why here in a little bit. But his first name is Albert McCain. Albert McCain was a name that was known to the Graham family, but nobody else would have known his name back in 1934. Back in 1934, this employee of the Grahams, because Billy Graham's father was a farmer, a dairy farmer by trade, and so every morning the the kids would be up milking the cows and everything else, and it was just kind of this life that they lived in North Carolina. Well, the employee of this dairy farm by the name of Albert McCain invited Billy Graham to go to revival. And at this revival, Billy Graham went um, kind of at the urging of this employee, not really sure what to expect, but he went, and he found another name, and that name was Mordecai Ham, and that name made ring true for maybe if you've grown up in church world and you know that name, but Mordecai Ham was the evangelist that God used to change Billy's life forever. And so it was this dairy farmer's employee that invited him to go. It was this evangelist that he gave his life in that meeting over to Christ. And then another name, John Minder, was an academic dean of a small Bible college. Billy Graham, this is a fun story, he, he first went to Bob Jones and, and, and had some disagreements with Bob Jones on their fundamentalism, <laughs> and uh, it, it didn't sit well. They didn't like him, he didn't like them, and uh, ended up going to another Baptist college in, in Florida, and, and he went there, and as he was there, this academic dean of the small Bible college invited Billy Graham to preach on Easter in Florida to a small group of Baptist pastors, John Minder is his name. So he takes Billy Graham to this, this uh, pastor's gathering on Easter, a Sunday evening, and he takes Billy with him. Billy's assuming John is the dean. He's going to do the preaching. Like any good disciple maker, right? He takes Billy into the room. They are sitting in the room, and they said, give us the message. And he turns to Billy Graham, and he says, you ready? And just walks off. And Billy's like, what? And so he's, he's forced into his first preaching ever. And his first preaching ever, he delivers four sermons, <laughs> four sermons in one evening, all of them not his. All of them he's memorized out of Moody Press book, and he delivers all four. And he says, it was the worst experience of my life, but one of the best. And so you think of Albert McCain, Mordecai Ham, John Minder, these names that seem nothing to us, but were hugely influential 
angel in a man that we all know as Billy Graham. This morning, I'm hoping that you understand that as we talk through 1 Corinthians, that there are going to be names in our lives that, that may seem like nothing to other people, but they are hugely important in the matters of Jesus Christ and what he's doing. And Paul's going to basically lay out for us this idea that it doesn't matter about the names. It matters about Jesus and who he is taking these things of foolish and turning them into wise. So Paul's going to continue his rebuke. Last week, just to catch you up, we, there were two different teams. There was Team Wisdom on one side uh, who said that basically we trust Christ because he is the wisest thing. We've rationalized it. We've thought about it. We've philosophized about it. And now we believe that Jesus is God. And then we said there's also the other side. The Jewish people said it was team power. And that team was, we, we just need to see miracles. We need to see him do these things that are power and honored and those kind of things. And so these two teams existed. One was team wisdom. The other was team power. Not this team power, but team power, right? You're welcome. That was just for me. Um, Anybody remember team power? No? Okay. You're better off. Um, Back in the 1980s, that was the thing, man. They'd come in and rip phone books. It was awesome. Um, With fire in churches. They're still around, I hope. I'm going to bring them in some week. Um, Team power, right? And and, and these were the two sides within the Corinthian church. And and this is what Paul was getting into. So we're going to read the passage this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to dive into it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Here's a key. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let me pray. Father, this morning, you are the name above all names. You are the king of kings. You are the one we've come to worship this morning. I love that our worship, when it comes to your name, we get loud, we get excited because it's you. It's you that changes lives. It's you that's part of this uh, new endeavor into this new community. It's you. And so, Father, we turn everything over to you. Spirit, we ask that you would just illumine Scripture as you said you would, that you would make it real in our hearts, that you would um, confirm and convict and do the work. Um, God, I pray that if there are things that um, need to be shared, they would be clear. And Father, that those things that uh, are not from you, they would just not be uh, remembered. But Father, instead, that we would turn all of this over to you. May you speak through your word to us this morning, and may we leave not just better, may we leave more like you. Um, this morning. I'm going to pray. Amen. All right, so this passage divides out pretty cleanly um, as you kind of look at the overall structure. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 25, the message of salvation, he says, is foolish in 18 to 25. We looked at that last week. This week, he says the recipients of the message are foolish. So that would be very awkward if you're reading a letter to the church and he says, hey, all of you who are receiving this letter, you are foolish. You're welcome. And that's where he's heading. And then he says not only are the recipients foolish, he's going to end today with 2, 1 through 5, and he's going to say the preacher himself is foolish, to which the congregation said, 
Amen. Very good. All right, so the recipients were foolish and the, the preacher himself. And so let's go into verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful and not many were of noble birth. Circle highlight, this is kind of crucial when he says, not consider your calling. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were powerful. Not many noble birth. This calling was, was huge. This calling is it's not even a specific calling into, you may have been in church and heard the, the phrase, he's called me into this mission or this ministry. That's, that's kind of what many believe is not the case here. What we truly believe is the case here is the general calling that God puts on all men and women in the world to come to himself. It's, it's the calling that he says, I'm going to draw all men to myself. And so if you think of it this way, it's kind of this idea of God calling all of creation, all of man to himself. And this calling goes out to the world. And this calling is one that is meant to draw those to them, not only to draw specifics, but to draw every one. Even those who were not wise, even those who were not powerful, even those who were not of noble birth. It was a general call to those to come. There would have been those in the Corinthian church that would have heard this and said, well, I'm pretty powerful, in, in which Paul would say, you're not Caesar. You're, you're, you're not living in that luxury. You were not born possibly even a Corinthian citizen or a Roman citizen, so you don't have all the rights that you think you have. And he says, consider who you were before you came to Christ. Consider who you were before God chose you, right? So the first thing he says is God calls them. There's a, there's a calling on their life. He says, not many of you are wise, not many of you are powerful, no birth. But then he continues, and he says in verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. That's a confusing st- sentence. We'll get that in a sec. But he begins this thing of saying, he called you, and then if that wasn't enough from the calling, he says, God then decided that the calling was, was a, a general, and then he says, I'm, I'm going to then choose you. So this is you. This little circle here is you. God specifically chose you. From all of creation, from all the things he had on his plate to do, he specifically, intentionally chose you. And he says he chose it so that what is foolish in the world is, is shamed by the wise. He says this is not going to make sense. He says this calling in your life to your friends and to your family that he chose you and brought you into Jesus Christ is not going to make sense. It's going to seem like, why do you go to church? Why is this part of your life? But God says, I chose you. And I think we hear that a lot, right? Um, you maybe have been in church for a while and you've heard the idea of God chose me. Ephesians chapter 1 says it like this, a different way. Blessed be the Lord, the God of the Father, Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God says, I specifically chose you. Maybe this morning that's, that's enough to hear that, right? That God specifically reached down and said, I want you. I'm picking you on my team. 
And I was thinking through this, and I'm like, how does this make sense? Because we can hear it, and we can theologically agree with it, but it's different from hearing it and reading it than actually seeing it. So I want to show you this quick clip out of World Vision. They have done a tremendous job throughout the years as far as uh, adopting kids and, and, and sponsoring children through World Vision around the globe. But I have to say, this clip uh, was, was the perfect clip, I think, when we talk about the idea of being chosen. So I want to show you this, and then we'll continue on. Right, so it's different when you see it. It's different when you experience it. I remember um, going back even before we planted this church and being down in Georgia in 2013, and uh, we were at a conference down there, and I remember specifically, uh, it's not often, I think, that uh, God audibly communicates, um, at least to me, and it, there's not this like divine voice that you hear every single day, but there was this moment that I truly felt as if we were kind of at this 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 point of do we do we do we trust him enough to leave a good job and leave a good situation and and and, and move into faith into something that is so unknown and so risky and 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 not sure if you're even going to get paid for, for for this thing and how are you going to work with a family and I remember specifically uh, that moment where God specifically spoke um, a full name over me and nobody ever uses my full name and I'm not going to give it to you today you're you're like oh what is it you know but he uh, specifically, I remember specifically sitting in worship, and there was this full um, name, and, and it was this, 
I've, I've, I've got you. You're, you're going to um, have to trust me in this. And you don't see anything yet. And there's no numbers. There's no people. We had no people. There was nobody in mind at that point. And God says, it's okay. Because that was enough. Not only for the moment of, of planting this church, but it was also the moment that I go back to often where God says, I chose you. And I chose what was foolish. And I chose what people see as despised. And I chose it because it's not about you. It's not about your story per se. It's about Jesus Christ in you. And, and if he gets the glory out of this, then that's what it's about. It's not about me. It's not about the name of Community Bible Church. It's the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, in this passage, Paul is telling this church, hey, God shows you, but don't get so excited about the fact of your pedigrees and all the things that you think you have, because that's not why he chose you. He chose you out of the goodness and the pleasure of his heart. That's why he chose you. He didn't choose you because you were some accolade or some some wise thing. He says, I chose you because I knew what I could do through your life. And so he, he calls us and he chose us and Paul reminds us of that. He says, I did this not only because I chose you, but he goes on, God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring the things that are. It's an interesting phrase. He says, I chose you, and I did it to shame the strong. And you're like, that seems like a really weird phrase. Like, why would God say he shames people? Some of you, maybe you're new to church, and you've been, visited, you've been asked to come by somebody, and you're not really fully sure you believe in this whole Christian faith thing. And, and you would understand this word of he shames the strong. And you're like, see, exactly. That's why I don't go to church. Because God's always about this thing of shaming me and making me feel like I'm inadequate. And he always is pointing out sin. And that's just what the church is there to do. It's just there to point out your sin and take your money. That's all church is. And, and, I, and I understand that feeling. I understand how, where people would come from, and they would believe those kind of things of, of this is kind of maybe what you believe. But, but ultimately, this is not about shaming just for the point of pointing out sin. This is a different kind of shaming. And this is interesting. This shame actually is a Greek word called tadamashuno, which is a fun word to say. But it's the idea of shame and disgrace and to put to utter confusion or to frustrate so let me read this out of a commentary. It says this, The image of shaming or dishonoring would have been vivid in the Corinthian context. The worst thing that could happen was for one's reputation to be publicly tarnished. Shaming was a familiar public phenomenon. In other words, shaming was like the, the thing to do. Like if, if social media was, was big back then, oh my word, it would just blow up with people just talking about you and making you feel as if you were that small. And you're like, well, that's the same thing it is today. Well, I get that. But, but back then it would have been a privilege and an honor to shame people. It was, it was kind of the way they did it. Now, in spite of Aristotle's commendation of Hebrews as gratuitously doing or saying things to shame another solely for the pleasure of it because one has the power to do it. That's basically what they said. Now, it was to make one feel superior, and, and we all know that feeling of shame. But here's where it turns. But Paul does not have that in mind in a moral, philosophical shaming that he may have in mind in 2 Corinthians 9, chapter, 20, chapter 9, verse 4. But instead, the verb is to shame, and it should be understood in the Old Testament matrix to refer to coming under God's judgment. And I fully believe that. This is not just shame as far as, like, you're a pitiful person, you're a bad person. This was shame in the fact of you are outside of Jesus Christ. This was the condemnation of saying there's a reality of a hell and a reality of a heaven. And in the midst of this, this is a you need to be brought underneath this judgment of God in, the, in, in our sins so that we can have restoration with God. 
This would probably follow closely with Romans chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And again, that's this, this salvation kind of shame, not like this, you know, I feel like a bad person kind of shame. This was condemnation as far as eternity goes. This is salvation. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see what he's doing here? He's saying saved and shamed are, 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 are in the same goal. I, I, I expose your sin to show you the need of your Savior so that you may be saved. And, and that's, that's what he's driving at here in Corinthians as well. I'm not just saying you're bad people. I'm saying that the sin in your life needs to be dealt with so that you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me give you a story from the life of Jesus that may explain this just a little better because I love stories and I think Christ does a, obviously an amazing job with this in his story. This is uh, Luke chapter 13, 10 to 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. This is Jesus. And behold, there was a woman who had, been, uh, a, who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Can you imagine 18 years with this disability? She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. Uh, my, my, uh, my grandfather uh, worked on a farm, and he had one of the guys as an employee. Uh, I can't remember his name, but he, he, he had the same kind of like it was a condition. It wasn't a disabling spirit, but it was a condition where he was always bent over, and he could never look up. And this lady suffered from this kind of a, a an illness, and so she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from this disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. Great story, great beginning. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus he had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which the <laughs> this is so good. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. <laughs> Can you miss the point any more clearly? It's like somebody coming in on a, on, a, on a Sunday morning, they get healed, and the church is just distraught because they've done something of work on the Sabbath. And he says, couldn't you have come on the other days? Why do you have to come and do it on this day? And Jesus knew that it had to be on that day. Jesus did this on purpose. And he says in verse 15, Then the Lord answered this ruler, You hypocrites. Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You want to yell at me for healing? You want to yell at me because healing is work, and yet you are going to take your donkey, which is work, and walk it over to the trough to make sure your ox and donkey get water so that they are healthy, so that you can have them for work the next day. You're going to judge me, and yet you're going to do this to an ox and a donkey. And he drives the image home by saying, I healed this woman, human being, woman, dignity, respect. And he binds it to this ox and donkey imagery, and he says, you you care more about this ox and this donkey than you do about this woman's life. And to shame the strong was a big statement in the hypocrites of these Jewish believers who were, who were basically just saying, you, you can't do that. And he said, ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, so she was a Jew, which is a big statement, whom Satan bound for 18 years, should she not be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? And he said these things, this is the key, he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. 
He is doing something great by the calling. He is doing something great by the shaming of exposing their sin. And when he exposed the sin of the woman, she came and turned to relationship with Jesus Christ. When he exposed the shame of the Pharisees, they ran the other direction. But the shame was to expose the sin in their life so that they would follow Jesus Christ. And here's the great thing. Your calling, my calling, him choosing us is worth rejoicing today as it was back then. Our calling may cost us something to follow Christ, but in the end, what he's saying in salvation and what he's saying in choosing you in salvation, he's saying this, at the end of the day, you win. We win because we are in Christ. We win. And so even that shame that brought us to Christ Even exposing those things is a good thing because it means in the end we are in Christ and we win. Through Christ we win. The people rejoice at all the glorious things that were done by him. And then Paul explains in verse 29, going back to Corinthians now, why it is we win. And so I'm going to continue in 29 as we finish out the last sections here in in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, we win, verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, that's a great statement. If that's like, if that's, that should be a theme verse for most of us, right? So that we don't boast in the presence of God. Because in reality, if you're boasting next to God, what is it that you really truly have to offer next to him, right? It, it would it'd be the equivalent of like a couple years ago, uh, I, I was coaching rec soccer, and in rec soccer, we made it to the the whatever it is. I don't even know what it is. Uh, but the finals and semifinals, anything. And so uh, we, we made it there and we got the semi, uh, we got runner up, I think is basically how it all worked out. And they gave us these little trophies, right? And these little trophies with a soccer ball and all the kids were just so excited because they had, you know, almost won the division and it wasn't for that Maslin team we would have won and amen to that and still a little bitter. And, and so it was just this great rivalry and this great trophy and they give all these trophies out and it's this rec league junior soccer trophy for like fifth grade, fourth graders. Okay. Now imagine me taking that trophy with me everywhere I went, right? And I show it to everybody. Did you see what I did? Coached fourth and fifth graders to the semifinal runner-up. That's what I did. Can you imagine me, like, putting that out for people? Like, I put it out every Sunday. Do you remember who I am? Runner-up, rec league soccer coach. One year. And then, and then magnify that. I take that to the World Cup, to the Women's World Cup, right? And I go to the U.S. women's team, and I'm like, have you seen my trophy? And they laugh like you would, correct? Right? It's just ridiculous. And and you know people, unfortunately, that may be that ridiculous. They carry those things around. They're still wearing their Letterman jacket. It it doesn't doesn't fit. And you're kind of like, dude, it's not high school anymore. We're so past. Just let it go. Let it go. Mullet's got to go, the whole thing. Unless you're an Oregon State coach, and then that's awesome. But anyway, um, so you you, you understand, like, it seems so ridiculous. It's it's, it's the same as just just trying to boast in a presence of God. It's it's as if you uh, were were basically not only in soccer, but holding up a t-ball trophy, bragging about how hard you worked in the offseason at age five to accomplish a t-ball trophy, standing next to Bryce Harper. Like, I mean, that's the kind of imagery we're getting at here. Like, it's just kind of one is so shame, like ridiculous, and the other is so what it should be. And, and that is what God is saying here. I do this. I save you to expose the fact of who you are is not in comparison to who I am. And, and, and it's a true reality that we, we often tend to try and make ourselves bigger and better than we think we are. 
when in reality, God says, the boasting that you do should not be in human beings. It should not be in man's power, but in Christ, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God because they have nothing to boast about. And because of him, verse 30, we're not supposed to boast, and then 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, he put you into Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So if we were to look at it visually, it would look like this. He says, not only did God call you, he says God chose you, and then what God did is he put you in Christ, okay? I know you're like, ooh, right? But drawings, right? So he puts you into Christ Jesus. Now, the problem is often we don't fully live as if we are here. We often live as if we're outside of Christ, correct? We often feel as if we've got to measure up, do the right things, do the right stuff, and eventually maybe hopefully God will like us. Instead, the reality is you are positionally, Paul says, in Jesus Christ. You are already in Christ. He says you have been put into Jesus Christ who became to us. And so he gives us a couple things that Christ became that now we are in. So he says the first thing is he became wisdom. So you were put into Christ, and because of Christ, you were put into Christ wisdom, not your own. It's a different playing field. And then he says not only are you put into Christ wisdom, you are put into Christ's righteousness. Okay? And he says you are now in Christ's righteousness. And you're like, okay, so what is righteousness? That's a big word, big Christian word. It is basically this idea of a complete clearing of your record. All the things you did prior to Christ, all the things you do currently, all the things you will do against Christ, he says you have been put into Christ, and because you are in him, God looks at the righteousness of Christ when he sees you, and he says, because I see Christ in this scenario, I see Christ's righteousness and not your own. So this righteousness means that God sees you clearly as clean and holy and like his son, and yet it is a hard, hard place to live because we continually live here and forget that we should live here. God always looks through and says, I see my son in you. I see my son in you. Yeah, you're going to mess up. Yeah, you're going to fall on your face. That's part of being human but I see the righteousness of Christ in you. That's why we believe in grace so much here is that it's because the righteousness of God was put on our behalf and that I can live in freedom because of Christ's righteousness in me. The record has been cleared. I now have a relationship with Christ. I am fully able to go into eternity with God and be in his standing because of this righteousness that was given to me. So he gives you wisdom he gives you righteousness. And if that's not enough, he says not only did he put you into righteousness, he also put you into this big word, word called sanctification. Sanctify. I'm going to misspell it. Sanctification, right? He says not only are you completely clear, but I'm putting you in a box in which Jesus Christ himself will continually, over your lifetime, make you more like himself. That's, that's crazy. Just think about that just for a second. Because here's what we've grown up maybe in church believing. We've grown up in church believing that I've got to do all the hard work. I've got to do the work. I've got to read my Bible. I've got to do the devotions. I've got to come to church. And if I'm not there five times or six times a week, then therefore God doesn't love me as much as he loves so-and-so who's there five or six times a week. 
That's not true. The Bible says that God is your source and your power to make you more like himself. There are days in your pastor's life where he prays to God and says, God, I want to want you today. I have had prayers where I've said, God, I need your desire to desire you because today is a day where I don't even know if I desire you. I've had days where I'm like, God, I don't desire to be in your word as much as I need to be. So I desire the desire to be in your word. And wouldn't you know it, God is good enough and powerful enough to change the desires of my heart and in your life, your heart, and take you and say, I'm going to change your desire. I'm going to put you into the word of God. I have talked to people in this church who you've never, never, opened the Bible before, and yet God is doing something in your life, and he's causing you to open your Bible and can't get enough of it, and you're like, I don't even understand why I do this. It's the power of Christ in you, making him more like himself. Because you are in him, he will make you more like himself as you get to eternity. Sanctification, this is, I know, rabbit trail, but sanctification is not a destination in this world. Does that make sense? You are not going to get to the point in your Christian life where you're like, done, nailed it, Jesus can come, boom, I'm good, right? That's never going to happen to any of us. We are always growing to be more like Jesus Christ in this side of eternity. And this is the most frustrating truth and the most freeing truth you can hear this morning is that you will always be growing in Christ until you receive eternity. And for some of you, you're like, that's so frustrating because I just want to get it right. And I just want to be there and I want to have it done. And I've checked it off and I'm in heaven now. No, God is growing you and growing you and growing you. And God will have seasons in your life where you're continually growing. But here's the key to remember this morning. And I know I reiterate this again and again, but you have to remember you are in Christ. You are in Jesus. He is doing the work on your behalf. So calm down. Relax. It's okay. What do you mean? It's okay to sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't hear that this morning. Well, Joel said I can sin all I want. No, I will rebuke you to your face. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying relax because Jesus has you. If we could get this, we would be much nicer people. If we could get this, we would be less guilt-driven people. Please understand what I'm saying this morning. You have sin. You are jacked up. Same here. But for the love of Jesus Christ in my life, I am seated in Jesus Christ. So on days where I feel like I am not and I can't get it together, he is my righteousness. He is making me more like Christ every single day. And I have no wisdom to really figure out how. Yeah, I grow through the word of God. Please hear me. That's a weird line. But I'm telling you, it is Christ in us. And it is Christ growing us. And hopefully, maybe somebody this morning, you just need to hear that. Relax. God's got you. He's going to work this through. He's going to expose sin in your life. He's going to bring truth into your life. And lastly, if that's not enough, he says, I've given you righteousness. I've given you sanctification in this world. And I've given you, lastly, I put you in Christ, which is redemption. 
And that is, I get eternity with Christ to come. It is a complete rescue for eternity. So the three things he's put you into, he's put you into complete clearing of your record here. He's given you complete changing you here on earth here, and he's given you a complete eternity, a completed rescue to come. All because he put us into Christ. For me, this happened uh, early on, and him putting me in Christ was a lot different than him putting Paul into Christ because my world was rural America, Ohio, living underneath the salary of my dad who was a mechanic his whole life, and my mom never had to work, and my dad just did everything for us, and it was an amazing example set for us. And my worst sin was, was probably the, the uh, my parents probably didn't know this one, but um, when I was younger, I saw a G.I. Joe figure I really, really wanted, and I, um, it was an Ames store. Anybody remember Ames? Yeah, welcome. Uh, and I really, really wanted it, and so I said, I'm going to take it. And so I did, and uh, it was this little white ninja by the name of Storm Shadow, and uh, he was awesome, so I took him because Snake Eyes wasn't available. Um, and so, geeky. So I took him, and I stole him, and uh, the biggest thing that was, it was like the Old Testament, like, Aiken kind of thing where something was buried underneath the tent. This guy, every time I looked at it, I'm like, you stole it. You stole it. You stole it. You stole it. And God used that in my life, I'm telling you, and worked some things around me. But I'm telling you, that guy ended up like getting blown up by fireworks and buried in my driveway (laughs) because I couldn't handle it. I'm like, I got to get rid of it. It's too much. But God, even that small thing, it was still a sin and an offense against God, and it was still a relationship I didn't have with him, and I put my faith into Jesus Christ, and he put me in to him. That's your preacher, Paul's preacher, as the preacher, he says, and when I came, verse 1 of chapter 2, this is Paul, when I came, I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know, know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of the power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul's testimony was he was of the house of Judas. Paul basically went from being blinded to a guy named Ananias, and he spent some time with Ananias, a fellow follower of Jesus Christ, who took care of Paul. From there, Paul went to the disciples in Damascus, and then Paul spends about three years or so being trained by Jesus Christ himself, which made Paul an apostle. Do you guys realize that? Paul didn't just learn like this stuff. He was an apostle because Jesus Christ trained him. And you're like, where did you get that? Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 17. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my, my own, uh, beyond many of my age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he had been, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were the apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned into Damascus. And for three years, he says in Galatians, I received a revelation from Jesus Christ and being taught by Christ and being in the presence of Christ. And God put Paul into this scenario. 
What's that mean for here? That means that Paul is saying you as the recipients are unwise, foolish people who need Jesus Christ in your life to have power and meaning. He says the, the church as a whole, and then he says me as your pastor, please understand. He says, I came to you in weakness. I came to you in foolishness. My words were not as eloquent as Apollo's. And so I came to you in weakness and I chose, this is so cool. I chose to not come with plausible words of wisdom, but I chose to come in demonstration of the spirit and of its power so that your fight, faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Corinthian church, this fighting of this who's the best and who's not, it's all revolving around this problem of do you trust in the power of God or do you trust in your own abilities? And this morning, hopefully you understand as we've walked through this passage, it doesn't matter the wisest, the most honorable in the room. What matters is Christ who changes our lives as he puts us in himself and says, I give you clear standing, I give you life here, and I give you an eternity to come, and it's all through my power. This morning, I want to close with um, one passage, and this is directly from 1 Corinthians that Paul quotes this prophet as well. Paul quotes him in this uh, passage here, and he says this in Jeremiah chapter 9, and this is where I want to close today. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. In all this idea of power and strength and who's in charge, Paul goes back to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this. So if you want to boast or brag about anything, if you want to put out there on any mug or social media thing and you want to really say, I want you to know this about my life, if you want to boast about anything, boast in this. Boast in the fact that you understand that he understands and knows me. If you want to boast in anything, boast in the fact that I know Christ and I understand his love for me. And that transforms everything. If you want to boast in anything, boast that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight. That's awesome. He doesn't just do them because he has to, because he's God. He delights in bringing steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For these things, I delight, declares the Lord. And if you boast in anything, boast in me. Community Bible Church, um, here's, here's what I want to hope and, and pray. Is one, you leave this morning encouraged of who you are in Christ. If you are not yet in Christ, may I just point to this and say, why not put your life in Christ, who gives you a complete new standing and a complete new way of doing life and an eternity that is for sure and forever and planted in you. That's number one, that you know who you are in Christ. I hope that's true of you today, and I hope that you understand that's the, the goal of us, that we, we know who we are in Christ. But here's my second one. Just as a, a, a possible, here's what I, I'm asking maybe to do this week. I want you to think of those people maybe in your life that have had that huge difference in your life, who have made that impact in you spiritually, that have put that thing of Jesus Christ in your path, who were instrumental in your testimony. Those people that had a beautiful role in bringing you to Christ. And this week, I would love for you to send a quick text, quick phone call, letter, whatever it is, and just say, hey, you know what? This, this week, I've, I've been really challenged in this idea of Corinthians and, and that God does the work. 
and that we are kind of foolish in his sight, but, but we have people in our lives that, that brought us here. I just want to say thank you for, for doing that in my life. And for me, I can think of three or four guys in my life that, that I, I go back to and I say, man, thank you for pointing me to Christ when I wanted nothing to do with him. Thank you for being faithful to push me in these things. And I'm telling you, that person's going to get your text or letter or phone call and be like, what? I totally didn't even, yeah, I know. You probably forgot or you probably just moved on, but I need you to know, man, that, that changed my life. And there is something beautiful about that conversation that says if it wasn't for God using you in my life, I don't know where I'd be. So just do that as a challenge for you this week. Think of that persons or those persons who, who have had that impact in you that have pushed you towards Christ. Just say thank you. And then say thank God for putting them in your life because it's his wisdom to do that. So I pray that's true for you. Let me go ahead and close this out in prayer and then we'll, we'll end with a song I think that is beautiful in this idea of sanctification and that Christ alone is for us. So God, we thank you this morning. We, uh, we praise you for being a God who is for us. Uh, I thank you that if we boast in anything, we are to boast in you, the one who gave us eternity, the one who makes us more like himself every single day, the one who is truly reigning, giving us all that we need. Fathers, we sing this last song. It's uh, more of a hymn and a, and a declaration kind of hymn. But I pray, God, that we would sing it out as believers in Christ. If, if that's us in this room, we would sing it out in confidence that before the throne we are free. But when the enemy tries to tell us things that aren't true, I go back to truth in your word, and I say it's before the throne I sit. It's in you alone that I have my confidence. And so may we sing this out together, one body, one church, unified, and praise to you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.